and welcome to this special episode of our Critical Theory and Context podcast on the war in Ukraine, its implications, and the anti-war protests in Russia. My name is Robin Silikates, and I'm co-director of the Humanities and Social Change Center in Berlin. In the middle of this unfolding catastrophe, Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, the focus is rightly on what is happening on the ground in Ukraine and on the international reaction to the war. At the same time, Russians around the world and in Russia itself have come out to protest against the war and the Putin government. Today, we speak with a prominent voice of the Russian anti-war protests, Greg Yudin. Greg is professor of political philosophy at the Moscow School of Social and Economic Sciences and a regular contributor to the online platform Open Democracy, as well as to independent Russian media platforms such as uh, Project, which has already been banned, and Republic, which has come under increasing pressure by the state apparatus. I hope you will find the following conversation as enlightening as I did. Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Critical Theory in Context podcast and a special welcome to our guest today, Greg Uden. Hi, Greg. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Well, I would like to start by thanking you for taking the time to talk to us today under these uh, very difficult and very challenging circumstances. Um, so over the last days, we saw protests against the war in Ukraine all over the world, but also in Russia itself. Um, despite the great risks of going out in the streets in opposition to the government, there were thousands of people protesting in cities all over Russia. Uh, you yourself were arrested at an anti-war demonstration in Moscow just a few days ago. Um, and over the last days, uh, thousands of protesters have been detained. Could you give us a sense maybe of the current situation in Russia? Well, uh I feel like there is a nascent anti-war movement uh, in Russia uh, and can be seen in the numbers of uh, those taken out to the streets uh, every night uh, for several days already and the number of uh, detained is uh, several thousand uh, and the, the number of those detained every night is not going down. So this awareness justifies the fact that Russians are uh, realizing the the scale of the catastrophe uh, that is happening to, to our country and of course to uh, to ukraine and to the whole planet actually uh, and uh, it is quite predictable that it takes time for russians to, to realize the gravity of the situation uh, because number one th thing you should realize about russia is russia is completely politicized people um, try to stay away as far from politics as possible, are completely disengaged, uh, distrustful of the politicians, uh, prefer to mind their own business, uh, and of course, uh, afraid of uh, repercussions in case of uh, political participation. Uh, for that reason, uh, what happened on Thursday, uh, when uh, the war unleashed, came as a complete surprise, Uh, as a shock for a uh, vast majority of Russians. And they're still trying to, uh, to realize uh, what actually is, uh, is going on uh, and uh, still trying to grasp the, the 
gravity of uh, of this assault uh, on the on the neighboring country. But the stubbornness of this anti-war movement uh, indicates that uh, first of all Russians are gradually uh, awakening, and then of course that there is a core of uh, participants who are uh, very well aware of uh, the uh, of this uh, this gigantic uh, geopolitical crisis and are willing to uh, do something to stop it from within. The raw number of participants is perhaps uh, not that big, but take into account that in Russia, basically for two years, we already have all the public demonstrations uh, prohibited and you can uh, face criminal sentence uh, going out to the streets or at least uh, fines. In fact, people are not afraid uh, of being uh, fined or spending 15 or 20 days uh, in, in jail or even facing uh, criminal uh, criminal punishment. It, I think, tells a lot about uh, the um, the core uh, of uh, this uh, this movement. Yeah, could you maybe say a bit more about this core or what that stubborn stubbornness is um, due to? Does it have with um, you know like the political activism that people have been engaged in in these groups? Um, is or is it uh, like a more spontaneous reaction to uh, the current uh, to the current war? And maybe also, what are the prospects of this politicization that you uh, described as a slow process, one that has to unfold? against the background of, I guess, massive misinformation, um, lack of a, you know, sort of public sphere, um, um, depoliticization, demoralization, I assume, as well, in, in the face of um, the developments of the last um, decade or so. The uh, core of uh, those products is actually uh, the people who are, uh, in fact, politically uh, engaged, or politically engaged, uh, years, uh, mostly young people, because in Russia over the last uh, three or four years, we have a very clear cleavage between the the elderly people and the rest, and most of all between the, the elderly people and, and, the, and the youth. Uh, so youngsters are uh, really tired of, of Putin. Uh, really tired of uh, of his policies, and of course, uh, this uh, dramatic uh, escalation uh, is something that takes them uh, to the streets. But uh, I, I should also say that this time, this core is far larger than uh, simply the the usual the usual suspects, the usual political uh, activists who are getting out uh, to to the streets. Uh, as for the rest. Uh, I should say that uh, once again, when people are so much deeply incised, uh and uh, completely disinterested in um, foreign policy, because this is also a change that happened in, in Russia over the last uh, four or five years, after real rise of, of attention to uh, to international politics uh, in 2014, uh, it then waned. And uh, now it is the the domestic agenda that people are preoccupied with: the rising prices, the the pandemic, so the, these these kind of, uh, of things. And these conditions, uh, it is something that uh, was very easy to to expect that this kind of shock uh, immediately uh, activates 
the most easily available uh, interpretations uh, which are uh, provided by by the government uh, and those interpretations i should say are uh, completely insane uh, i mean what they are telling to the people is a uh, is is a war propaganda it, it's worse uh, and people who are disengaged of course uh, they are willing to take this uh, propaganda as a, as a basic version of, of what is going uh, what is going on uh, I would say that at this point uh, though there is a little enthusiasm despite this this propaganda I think it is basically uh, trusted by I would say half of the population uh, but there is no enthusiasm uh, about uh, about it, uh, and the general mood is very different from what we had here in 2014 uh, during the annexation of Crimea. It was a kind of feast of joy. Now it is uh, tension uh, all over here uh, and anxiety. Mm, so, despite the uh, the war propaganda being generally trusted, I don't see it uh, activating. Uh, too much support. The uh, segment that is supporting uh, this uh, military aggression is uh, rather limited, I should say. I think it's comparable to those who are actively opposed to it. And then you have uh, like a large swamp uh, between them. Uh, that uh, will probably be um, at stake uh, for the days uh, for the days to come. You mentioned the um, the war propaganda. I mean, uh, you also work on uh, the public sphere and uh, also the way in which uh, public opinion is, um, let's say, weaponized in uh, a context such uh, as Russia, but not only there, of course. Um, I mean, what role can uh, protest or public interventions, also all these open letters and petitions that have been coming out of, uh, you know, activist and artistic and intellectual circles, what role can they play in challenging this propaganda machine of uh, the government when the state is in almost complete control of the media, when you know there's this restriction on, on, on the public, um, both in spatial and in media terms, and when there's this kind of Orwellian discourse uh, developing that it seems quite difficult to uh, to challenge? Um, yeah, how do you assess this this situation of the you know kind of hegemonic attempt to control the public sphere and the counter hegemonic attempts to crack open to crack it open in some some ways? Uh, those uh, subversive actions, I think, they are doing a very good job of uh, spreading the uh, the shared understanding that there is uh, a lot of dissent uh, here. Uh, in that case, and uh, since most of the people are once again uh, still puzzled about what's going on, uh, this uh, understanding that there is a lot of dissent uh, around them, uh, it kind of affects uh, affects their view. Uh, and the longer the uh, war uh, continues, uh, the more obvious it becomes uh that you cannot stay uh in distance uh to you have to take a position and in that respect uh those uh voices of uh anti-war people uh are becoming uh heard uh there's a lot of 
a lot of reasons for uh, people to be cautious about war. First of all, because uh, many, many Russians have uh, friends and relatives uh, in, in Ukraine, uh, and they simply start getting very alarming uh, messages uh, from, from Ukraine. Then, of course, uh, you have uh, a massive uh, number of, uh, of Russian soldiers uh, killed uh, and wounded uh, in Ukraine. Uh, also, rumors are spreading uh, across uh, the country gradually. It was supposed to be a blitzkrieg, uh, a successful uh, and short uh, assault on, uh, on Kiev. Uh, looks like it didn't work. And at this point, public opinion is, I think, set to change uh, to change against uh, against war. We already have um, several members of parliament who previously voted uh, for for the start of the military operation, but now are telling that uh, they didn't support an all-out war. Uh, we already have uh, a lot of. Um, celebrities uh, in, uh, in culture, uh, in uh, art, in science, uh, who are uh, willing to show that they are against this, uh, this war. So the voice of the anti-war movement is, uh, I think, already uh, heard. And it affects, uh, once again, those who are still undecided, and those who are still trying to hide behind their usual routine. And it is actually, I mean, it is surprising how many people are in there. I mean, for, for a country that takes part in a, in a real war, a lot of people are still trying to pretend there's nothing happening, like nothing, and uh, try to uh, keep it going uh, as usual. So these people, I think, are affected by this uh, anti-war uh, movement. It is rising. I think we are now at um, a turning point. Either uh, this movement will rapidly grow uh, and uh, start affecting the, the policy, or it will be brutally crashed. Uh, uh, it will be brutally crashed, uh, and uh, we will uh, dramatically enter in a very different uh, phase of uh, political life in Russia. I mean, that seems very significant. This um, is a shift in public opinion, uh, although it's difficult to gauge, uh, simply because, um, as you also in your work um, have uh, shown, the um, the Putin regime relied very much on a kind of selective and partly engineered mobilization of um, public opinion in a kind of plebiscitary um, style. Um, um, so that seems that seems a significant development. Um, but the other pillar, I guess, of um, of the uh, of the regime is um, the way in which um, uh, it has managed to secure support from financial, political, and security uh, circles and elites um, uh, by also distributing economic um, advantages, etc. I mean, do you see any, uh, you know, let's say cracks in the, you know, for simplicity's sake, just let me say, in the ruling class? I mean, is there? Is is you know is 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 it um, possible to say anything about how these elite circles that have been uh, supporting Putin over the years and um, how they uh, see these developments? Uh, at this point, it, it is still uh, too early to say and still difficult to say. Uh, I would say that most of them uh, remain silent, 
which is uh, already uh, important and uh, telling uh, about their uh, their attitude. And actually, we don't have that many uh, public supporters uh, of this war among the celebrities who are associated with with those elites, who are normally their uh, their voices. Uh, I would say that uh, surprisingly. We have uh, more voices against the war than than uh, for uh, it. Uh, Taking into, into account, of course, that uh, the majority, uh, vast majority, uh, still remains uh, remains silent. Uh, what we already know is that two uh, two oligarchs, uh, Mikhail Friedman, who lives in London, and uh, Alek Deripaska, uh, who probably must be in somewhere in Russia, but I'm not sure about that. Uh, he had uh, a lot of issues with uh, American uh, authorities uh, recently. So they have already made their statements uh, against war and uh, for peace. Uh, that could be uh, a beginning. Uh, it could trigger a chain reaction, but it is too early to say now. And once again, uh, I think that once this sort of chain reaction is looming, uh, there is a high risk of, uh, of a crackdown. Yeah, you, you spoke about the um, your view that there's a turning point um, approaching. Um, could you say a bit more about that? So about, you know, either the, the, the catastrophic scenario of um, the movement not picking up, and then what what you refer to as a you know intensification of the crackdown. Um, what would that mean in terms of the development of the the regime in Russia, uh, but also for the um, uh, you know more hopeful scenario that the uh, that the anti-war protests will indeed um, um, grow more powerful and uh, become become a movement that influences um, uh, you know the the policy of the government. What are the prospects for these two um, scenarios? Well, I think there are actually three factors working here, and all of them are exerting a considerable pressure on uh, on Putin. One, the first factor, of course, is incredible and heroic uh, resistance by by Ukrainians, uh, showing that he terribly miscalculated, uh, believing that there is no such thing as Ukraine, there is no such thing as Ukrainian state, there's only a, a gang of uh, drug addicts and Nazis, as he puts it. Uh, well, Ukraine is very real, uh, Ukrainians are very real, they are willing to fight for their existence, and uh, that was a terrible, uh, terrible miscalculation. This is factor number one. Second factor is uh, the joint response uh, from uh, from the West, but also from the, the the global community in general. And even though Putin was, of course, prepared to all kinds of sanctions, I still think that uh, the uh, the harshness uh, and uh, the certitude and uh, the way are the, these sanctions are put in force resolutely. Uh, I think it was also surprising. Uh, and uh, this is fact number two. And now the, the third one is this uh, rising anti-war sentiment uh, in Russia. Uh, so this is why I think that we could be somewhere near a turning point uh, right now. 
what I think could happen uh, now, well, there are several scenarios, actually. Uh, the most gloomy scenario is uh, a rapid transformation of, of Russia into, uh, into a totalitarian state uh, <clears throat> with closing the borders, uh, blaming the uh, crushed economy. And actually, I mean, I, I just came back from, from uh, several banks where I was bad, badly trying to withdraw some, some cash. All I managed to do is to find 1,000 1, rubles, uh, which is basically uh, 10 bucks now. And this has to be played on, some, on someone. Uh, so the easy way to do that would, would be to, to blame it on uh, some internal enemy uh, and projection of, of the external enemy, of uh, the Ukrainian Nazi regime, as they, as they put it, uh, and then cracking down on those people I think Russia uh, would be willing to pull out from the Council of Europe, uh, given the Council of Europe uh, has suspended the Russian membership itself. And if Russia pulls out from the Council of Europe, it means re reintroduction of capital punishment because there's currently a moratorium on, on capital punishment in Russia due to this membership. Uh, so this would be an easy way to start uh, the, the executions in uh, in the country and well then of course confiscate part of uh, part of the uh, the money and, and property uh, particularly from those who are uh, blamed uh, of, of this uh, of this crisis and then perhaps also uh, some sort of military mobilization um, there are rumors that uh, the minister of defense already requests more troops which i think makes makes no sense from the military point of view. But if you don't want to stop this war, you have to fuel it further and further. We know that uh, there are still troops uh, on the border with Ukraine not activated. Uh, a third, perhaps, of, of the full amount of troops assembled at the border of the initial buildup. But, uh, well, in theory, you can drive more uh, of military mobilization. So that would be the, the darkest scenario. And I think it is possible both in the case, both in case uh, Putin uh, doesn't manage to, uh, to make significant inroads in Ukraine, uh, and uh, if he actually manages to uh, take uh, Kharkiv or Kiev or uh, perhaps even both of them. Uh, well, actually, Putin taking taking Kiev and beheading Ukraine because he uh, he's obsessed with with killing Zelensky for some reason. That would, I think, create the the worst situation uh, because that would mean that he has uh, something some uh, something to rely on uh, during some possible negotiations. So that would be a combination of a crackdown and a, a partial military victory. Uh, now, if those sources of pressure are strong enough uh, to prevent these scenarios, uh, I think, uh, well, it is uh, quite possible that uh, Putin's uh, elites and the population, both, uh, both of them, will uh, become political subjects and we will see uh, Russian people uh, protesting against uh, this war. That might be very, very challenging for uh, for Putin. And what I think is important here is that it's really difficult uh, for me to, to imagine how, how the West 
would be prepared to uh, leave Putin where he uh, where he is now, given that he already blackmails, threatens uh, the whole world with uh, with the nuclear weapons. But that is probably a question for you. I mean, you know better. Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, yeah, even incredibly hard to grasp uh, challenges that I don't think anyone is really, um, you know, prepared to deal with politically, intellectually, um, and so on. Um, um, I mean, maybe one question to uh, two more questions, if you have the time, uh, um, that I would like to ask. I mean, one is that um, in some of your earlier writings, you have argued that. Uh, the war is also a kind of desperate defense um, uh, that Putin engaged in in order to uh, sort of defend the status quo and its political structures, and that this is precisely what makes the situation so extremely dangerous. Now, you um, elaborated a bit on that um, already, but, I mean, could you say a bit more about that and also what, what you think would be, um, you know, if, if that is the case, then how can one respond to this? I mean... Well, the reason why people, um, many people uh, weren't expecting him to uh, start this attack actually uh, up to the last moment was that people were trying to understand what does he gain from that compared to what he already has. And I think the uh, this whole right of, line of reasoning was flowed from the outset uh, because uh, he actually compares uh, what he can uh, gain from this campaign with uh, what he expects to happen over the next two or three years. And over the next two or three years, uh, it would be very, very likely uh, for a popular uprising in, in Russia to start just because people are tired of Putin. We already had, had this in, in, in Belarus, uh, where there was a, a huge attempt uh, popular revolution, and political culture in, in both countries is uh, very, very close. So uh, some sort of uprising, I think it is it is imminent. Uh, and for Putin, it is crucial, it is vital to have uh, everything at his disposal when he faces this sort of uh, uprising. Uh, he he uh, must be sure uh, that he can crush it at any cost, literally at any cost. Uh, and since he was so impressed by the fate of uh, Colonel Gaddafi in, in Libya, uh, where Gaddafi actually uh, tried to, to crush his own opposition uh, by military means and was stopped by NATO, so for Putin this is, uh, this is the main threat. If uh, he is somehow limited by NATO in dealing with his internal dissent, This is completely unacceptable. And if it has uh, a country like Ukraine, a huge country, second biggest country in Europe, uh, a site um, where a political regime is secured and guaranteed uh, by um, the Western military presence, uh, that becomes uh, a vital, uh, vital question for him, an existential threat. Uh, so in 2020 or in 2021, uh, at some point, Putin decided that um, Ukraine is sleeping away. Uh, it will become a military ally of the Western countries without even joining NATO. 
uh, and it is time uh, to decide the, the fate of Ukraine now. Uh, otherwise, it will be too late. Uh, he also thinks that Russia actually possesses some sort of uh, military advantage over the U.S. We don't know what exactly does he mean. Uh, there are rumors about some sort of uh, ultrasonic weapon. I'm not an expert in that. But he said several times that it is likely that this advantage is going to disappear in a few years. Uh, and some minor factors like change of government in Germany, uh, internal uh, polarization in the U.S., the failure of uh, Afghan operation, uh, the elections in, in France, uh, the instability of the gas market, the huge currency reserves uh, that he accumulated over the last years. All those things made it um, clear that uh, it, is now, it is time to attack now. It is time to attack to defend. And that, I think, is really, really important, that Putin is now on defensive, that he defends himself, uh, and uh, that he really believes that if he loses here, uh, he's dead. And I think he, it is really... Uh, dangerous because uh, any sort of defeat it would be uh, perceived uh, as uh, a mortal threat uh, for for him uh, for that reason I think it is very unlikely that he would be willing to to withdraw or to yield something and it, would, it is also very unlikely that should, should he should he win in Ukraine uh, he will start there it is very likely to uh, to continue further to the west. I mean, among the um, those who have been struggling both intellectually and politically to respond to the situation is also the Western left, of course. I mean, not that it's a homogeneous um, current, of course, but um, yeah, there have been uh, big debates, obviously internally. Um, sometimes uh, reminding me of the. Um, well, quite problematic um, reaction of some leftists to the to the war in Syria um, some years back. Um, you, uh, in an earlier conversation on this topic, uh, impressed the, the need on me to um, uh, realize the gravity of the situation and to um, not uh, sell out Ukraine, as you said. I mean, what? Yeah, what? What follows for this? For a leftist perspective on um, the politics of the moment. I mean, could you say a bit more about that? Because I think um, while um, you know, it's 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 clear there's a, that there's a um, huge solidarity movement with um, uh, with Ukraine and with the population of Ukraine and the way in which um, people there respond to the um, attack. There are larger uh, questions that uh, are. Um, you know, still, still, um, people on the left are still grappling with in terms of anti-militarism, anti-imperialism, and the ways in which these abstract commitments can sometimes also people lead people astray in um, recognizing what is happening in a specific historical constellation. Um, I think there is uh, a, a genuine problem for uh, for the left uh, with the. Very well justified uh, criticism of uh, American imperialism uh, and of um, American neoliberalism. Problem is that it often uh, leads uh, to um, accepting all all sorts of um, 
entities that are somehow different from uh, from this big uh, American empire as an alternative uh, to this empire. And that is also the case with Putin's Russia, which is, of course, uh, completely false, because Russia is a completely new liberal country. It, it's it has uh, it has achieved it has attained the the levels of neoliberalism uh, i think impossible in the us it is a completely at- atomized uh, society where basically there is uh, constant war of fall against all and uh, well this is this is a, a hobbesian world as i mentioned it is uh, this hobbesian situation this state of of nature the russian state that makes people so deeply decisive and uh, disengaged from uh, from public life. Uh, and of course, uh, this sort of new liberal state is also imperialist. And it has its own dynamic of, uh, of imperialism, some sort of reactive uh, imperialism. As I mentioned, it always uh, feels itself defensive and therefore needs to, to expand uh, in order to, to survive in order uh, not to shrink, in order to reproduce itself. Uh, and this sort of uh, imperialism was growing over the last uh, 20 years. It was promoting the, uh, the worst, uh, worst elements of, uh, of Russian imperial history. And this is how we ended up with uh, this idea that there is no such thing as Ukraine, that Putin himself promotes. Mm. And of course, uh, the very idea that the, a democratic politics, that the people should have a say at least in, in politics, is completely alien to, uh, to Putin. He simply doesn't believe uh, in, in the existence of such things as the people. Uh, he's a conspiracy theorist, and the fourth thinks of politics as uh, a set of agreements behind the closed doors, which are promoted or enforced basically through force, uh, through through brutal force. Uh, for that reason, of course, uh, what Putin proposes uh, is just the uh, the worst version of neoliberal imperialism. And I think the monster uh, that we are finally seeing uh, now will make us reconsider the uh, this neoliberal imperialist model that was so hegemonic over the last uh, of the last decades we will have to understand how, how did it happen that uh, putin was able to uh, become such an important part of, of global market uh, how he was able to become uh, such an important part of uh, european elite uh, how his cronies uh, were um, welcomed and accepted uh, across uh, Europe, uh, how did it happen that there was uh, there was no block installed, no inherent uh, obstacle uh, for this to happen? How did this system uh, turn out to be so dysfunctional, uh, dealing with that kind of uh, with that kind of behavior? And I think the answer is that this kind of behavior actually was not alien to this system at all. It was basically promoting the same ideals. Uh, it is built on the deep belief that uh, the only thing that matters is that people are greedy, uh, that money uh, decides everything, that everyone can be corrupted. Uh, and this is, this is the, the just the radical uh, version of the neo- neoliberal imperialist uh, vision. 
So I think what Putin does right now is uh, teaches us a lesson uh, about the uh, catastrophe that this uh, system can lead to, uh, particularly when it is completely unchained, when it is uh, not balanced, uh, not contained by some sort of uh, democratic participation, uh, by at least some sort of pluralism, by at least some sort of civil society. All those things are missing in Russia, and this is uh, what uh, this is what emerges uh, from. From, from the system in that case. For that reason, I think uh, it is important now to understand how dangerous uh, the beast is, to not to uh, underestimate the, uh, the aspirations uh, it has, uh, not, to, uh, not to try to, to appease it and realize clearly that uh, it is not going to stop in Ukraine. It is absolutely clear to everyone who has read uh, Putin's paper on Ukraine last year. Actually, that was already almost a declaration of war uh, because he says there that Ukraine basically has only two options, either to become Russian protectorate uh, in a peaceful manner or to be uh, conquered. And there in this uh, paper, it is absolutely clear that uh, he uh, believes uh, Poland is uh, an essential enemy of Russia. And I cannot think of Putin stopping in Ukraine and not attacking Poland, and not trying to destroy NATO or um, annexing uh, the Baltic states. So these things uh, are going to, to uh, overflow without a doubt. For that reason, I think it's very, very important to stop it now, almost at any cost, and to support, to support the resistance to the system which now happens to be in, in Ukraine, it is vital for, for the whole planet. Uh, basically, I believe what we're seeing now in Ukraine is an equivalent of Sudetenland uh, of 1938-1939. Uh, it has to be stopped now. Yeah. What are the possibilities of international solidarity? I mean, okay, making, you know, opposing um, the war, um, making the voices from within Russia heard that opposed the war? Um, what other possibilities do you see? Uh, well, the first thing to do, of course, is to support the resistance uh, everywhere, uh, to, resistance to, the, uh, resistance to the system everywhere. First of all, of course, in, in Ukraine, uh, where it happens to take this form of war, but also in Russia and in Belarus, Uh, because actually there are three uh, participants to uh, to this uh, to this conflict, and it has to be completely clear that uh, Lukashenko's Belarus uh, takes part in this aggression. Uh, it is also uh, a, a country uh, from where uh, the the attack started, uh, and Lukashenko of course supports uh, this this attack, having crushed his own people. He now uh, participates in destroying Ukrainian. Uh, so any sort of resistance uh, in Russia and Belarus, uh, I think, uh, deserves to be to be supported uh, because it is once again it exerts considerable pressure on, uh, on this gang uh, in power consisting of Putin, Lukashenko, and their cronies. Uh, 
but it also it's also important for the for the world to stay united and to stand united against uh, against this threat uh, to be ready to uh, pay the price that uh, it would be necessary to pay for defeating it. I think it is my impression that uh, the world is now realizing that the price could be really high, but uh, it is important to be ready to, to pay it. First of all, because uh, this is the only thing that Putin understands. If you are not willing to pay the price, uh, he will definitely blackmail you. Uh, and then second of all, because, because of the gravity of the situation. Uh, if we are ready to, uh, to deal with it, if we are ready to defeat it, then we have to be uh, ready to pay at least the financial price, uh, if not uh, the price in lives as uh, brave Ukrainians uh, are doing. Uh, well, I think, and I actually agree with, with German Chancellor Scholz on that, that uh, this is a, a new era. The post-Second uh, World War era has ended uh, with this aggression, and this is a new era, a new responsibility, and it, it is now on us to determine how the world will uh, look like in the decades, uh, in the decades to come. So this is the time to be uh, to be principled. This is the time to ask ourselves what do we believe in, what we truly believe in. Uh, what we uh, consider to be acceptable, acceptable, and what world we would like to inhabit. I think we can end maybe this conversation with these very powerful words um, that yeah, impose a burden, I think, on many of us and most of us um, that we're not really ready to, to face, but we have to. And I want to thank you, Greg, again for taking the time in this uh, very dark moment to speak to us at length and to share your assessment and to, um, you know, share both the frightening and the enlightening um, perspective that you that you developed in this uh, in this conversation. Take good care. And um, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Robin. And uh, once again, let's stay let's stay united against that. We, we all have to try our best, so uh, thanks so much, uh, Greg. Our guest today was Greg Uden. Um, if you want to find out more, you can see the links in our show notes and also read the article Greg published two days before the war began in Open Democracy, where he warned of uh, the most senseless war in Russian history. My name is Robin Silicatis. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us again next time.